Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer at Goop and co-host with GP of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is an incredible woman and truly inspiring to millions of other women. Her name is Marie Forleo. She is our second guest in our special eight-episode series that we're hosting in partnership with Banana Republic called Women on Top. I'll tell you a little more about that before we get to our conversation. Some of the most interesting businesses, or maybe all of the most interesting businesses, were born out of curiosity, a desire to explore, to ask questions and share answers. This is the space that Gwyneth was in when she started Goop. It's also the space from which Banana Republic was founded back in 1978, when two California creatives with adventurous spirits began upcycling military surplus clothing. And the rest was history. When we talked to the team at Banana Republic about partnering up on a special podcast series, their vision revolved around the idea of living a life with no boundaries. This is the inspiration behind their clothing today. It drives how they source premium materials from around the world, the ways they choose to innovate with their designs, and how they think about infusing style with substance. This is all on display in their fall collection, which combines iconic Banana Republic styles with a modern twist. To see it all and to shop Banana Republic's fall collection, head to bananarepublic.com goop. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Marie Forleo is an entrepreneur, a writer, a philanthropist, and the author of Everything is Figureoutable. She's also the creator of Marie TV and a series of extremely useful online training programs that are all devoted to helping us achieve whatever our dreams may be. They're called B-School. It's one thing to dream big, but it's a whole new beast when it comes to taking meaningful action to create real results. And that's what Marie is all about. 
Marie and I talk about her unstoppable belief that, you guessed it, everything is figureoutable. She shares with us the tools to push past whatever mental blocks are holding us back from doing what we love. She tells us about having the courage to listen to the little voice in her head, the voice that was telling her to quit the job and abandon the career trajectory she dreaded heading toward. She realized she'd be working for most of her life. She realized she'd be working for most of her life, so she might as well figure out what she loved doing and then figure out how to go do it. I'll let her take it from there. Do I stay on the safe path, stick with the corporate job and the health benefits and the steady paycheck, or do I quit and do this weird-ass life coaching thing that sounds absolutely ridiculous and almost makes me want to puke, yet it feels amazing in my soul? So I chose that. Okay, let's get to my chat with Marie Forleo. Take us through like the renaissance Oh my goodness. Woman of Marie, because you've done everything. I've done a lot of things. And I feel like I, you know, when I graduated from school, my first job was on the New York Stock Exchange, Wall Street. And I was really excited by that because there's no chairs, literally. And I'm a person with a lot of energy. So I'm like, this is awesome. There's no way I can be stuck behind a desk. And you must have a standing desk now. I, you know what? I bounce around so much <laughs> and I drive my team nuts because I'm always pacing. And if yeah. we're ever doing like video calls, they're like, you're in a bad zone. I'm like, sorry. Like, you know, I have to always be moving. That's how I do my best thinking. So Wall Street, exciting, you know, amazing potential from a financial perspective. And that was really important to me. I wanted to at some point in my life, earn a ton of money, not just for myself, not to have material things because I don't really care that much about that stuff. I wanted to never have money be a stress point and I wanted to help take care of other people. Yeah. That was my motivation. One thing I noticed real fast was I worked with 99.9% men. They were extremely chauvinistic sexist. It was hard to be taken seriously. I actually had a haircut shorter than you two months into my job because I just couldn't figure out how to be taken seriously. And I thought the long brown hair was maybe a piece of coming across a certain way. You do have an incredible mane. Thank you. Everyone thinks they're like, Marie, your hair needs her own show. And I'm like, (laughs) maybe we'll get there. But when I looked around at my coworkers and the trajectory of that career, I was like, these guys are making a bajillion dollars, but most of them seem spiritually bankrupt and they're pining for these two weeks of year, like vacation time. Right. And all the rest of it's just like, ugh, and let's get to the strip club and lines of Coke and all. And I was like, this is just not me. And there was this small voice inside that kept saying, this is not what you're supposed to do. You need to quit this job. Get out of here. But the logical, rational part of my brain, you know, growing up in a working class family, being the first in my family to go to college, you don't just quit a job without any safety net. I was already tens of thousands of dollars in debt. It felt wildly irresponsible. I'm like, why can't this little voice also tell me what else I'm supposed to do? But it didn't. It Mm -hmm. just kept saying, quit, quit, quit. I tried to ignore it. And then one day I experienced what I can only describe as perhaps a little panic attack where I started feeling dizzy, having trouble breathing. And I said to my boss on the floor, I said, I'm going to go out and get a coffee. And I made a beeline to the nearest church. So I went to Seton Hall University, which is a beautiful little Catholic college. So I was kind of trained at that point that in a crisis, you look up and you ask for help. So I'm sitting at Trinity Church, like bawling my eyes out, feeling like the biggest loser and feeling really conflicted. And the next signal I got was to call my dad. 
And that made sense because a large part of the guilt and conflict I was feeling was I didn't want to be a disappointment to my family or make them think I was ungrateful for all the sacrifices they made to put me through school. Mm -hmm. So I called my dad, blobbing snots coming out of my nose. And finally, when I took a broke and he could get a word in edgewise, he was like, Re, calm down. This is all okay. He said, I'm not worried about you paying your bills. You've worked since you were nine. You got to get this. You're going to work for the next 40 or 50 years. If you don't figure out what you love, you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. You have to find something you love to do no matter how long it takes. So if you feel like you need to quit, quit. You'll do whatever you need to do to pay the bills, but you've got to find something. And in that moment, even though I had no idea how I would do it, it made sense. Like mm -hmm. something in my bones felt like he was right on. And I think it also relieved a little bit of the fear I had about quitting when I knew I should be grateful to have a job and a paycheck and health benefits and all that stuff. So that was the beginning of me going like, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to do on this planet, but let me try and piece something together. And the only two clues that I had were that I was very creative. As a young kid, I thought I was going to be a fine artist or a fashion designer or something in that realm. But I also really loved business. I was mm -hmm. like, how do you... Pair the two? Yeah. It didn't seem like they could be paired. The first idea I had was magazine publishing because mm -hmm. I thought, well, there's the editorial side and then there's the commerce side. And so I hustled with a temp agency and got a position as an ad sales assistant at Gourmet Magazine in Condé Nast. What was the I feel like I went to that ad, that temp agency too. It was called like, not freeform. I can't remember, but did you have to fill out the paper slips? I filled out like a, the carbon forms yes. every week with like your time slip. Yes. Yes. And then it was just about impressing the folks where you were so that they would actually hire you full time. So I started working at Gourmet and I was really excited. I'm like, this has got to be it. I, for the first time, had a female boss. There was a female publisher. I was like, wow, from mm -hmm. a gender balance standpoint, there was just a lot more of it. You have Ruth at the helm. Yes. My, editorial greatness. Yeah. My table, my desk was near the test kitchen mm -hmm. and I'm Italian. I love to eat. So like they would always be like, Marie, do you want to try this new recipe? And I was always a yes. I'm like, of course, bring me the snacks. But about six months in, I heard those same inner voices again telling mm -hmm. me, Marie, this isn't it. And I was starting to feel a little panicked, but I tried to step back and take a more objective look and go, okay, what's wrong here? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I don't really want to be my boss who is an account executive. And I don't necessarily want to be the publisher. And I was like, well, if I don't want to climb this corporate ladder, why am I going to stay here wasting their time and mine? And I thought, well, maybe this is still too businessy. Maybe mm -hmm. I need more of the creative kind of juice. So I thought maybe the editorial side is really where I'm going to thrive. Went to HR got a position at Mademoiselle magazine in the fashion department as a fashion assistant. And I was like, okay, this has got to be it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, working with photographers and going on photo shoots and going to fashion shows. I was like, how can this not be awesome? And for the first three months, it was. There was novelty. I'm someone who really loves to learn. I love to work hard. But I will tell you, those voices came back. And one of the other factors, too, was I started to understand more about the pay scale of magazines. And Yeah, it's not pretty. It's not. And like what the editor-in-chief actually makes. Mm -hmm. And so just to set more context, I helped pay for college by being a bartender and a waitress. And there was something I really loved about the harder I worked, the more I made. 
And I couldn't square in my mind that no matter how many hours I put in or how much creativity I poured into this job, it was like someone else was deciding, nope, this is the paycheck every mm-hmm. single week. And maybe you get a bump every year or two. Yeah. Just something didn't feel right. So I was on the internet one day, probably when I shouldn't have been. This is like 1999. And I discovered this article about a new profession at the time, and it was called coaching. I'll tell you, it was like the clouds parted and there was baby cherubs in the, you know, floating around above and shooting like sunbeams out of their eyes. And it was like an ah moment. So I'm reading this article all about this new profession. And I had two conversations in my head going at once. First, you are 23 years old. This is the silliest idea I've ever heard. Who's going to hire a 23-year-old life coach? You have never lived life yet. You're a loser. You keep quitting your jobs. You're in debt. You have nothing to offer anyone. This is nuts. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't deny in my bones how right it felt. And so on the spot, I decided to sign up for a three-year coach training program. And it was done all remotely so I could do my studies at night and on the weekends and stick at Mademoiselle during the day. Fast forward about six months, I get a call from the HR department and they had a promotion for me at Vogue. It was more money. It was a better title. It's arguably one of the top fashion magazines in the world. And that was my fork in the road. Do I stay on the safe path, stick with the corporate job and the health benefits and the steady paycheck, or do I quit and do this weird ass life coaching thing that sounds absolutely ridiculous and almost makes me want to puke, yet it feels amazing in my soul. So I chose that. And I left the job and then had to start figuring out how to build a digital business in the year like 2000, 2001. And I just went back to bartending and waiting tables to keep a roof over my head. Yeah. I love in the book too that, well, there are many things that I think are really helpful, but this idea that clarity comes from engagement, not thought. And clearly you're an example of someone whose life is always in motion, right? And that you don't somehow talk yourself out of or over-research, because I know you cite that as something that women in particular love to do, but that you just go and do it. Yeah. So like you've been a fitness instructor, like a dance fitness instructor, a dance <laughs> athlete, a magazine editor, a magazine publisher, a stock trader, a life coach, yeah, Marie TV, And a bartender and a waiter and a toilet cleaner. Yes. But similarly, I mean, I don't think I have your chutzpah, but I also feel like I sort of grew up in this, like you work. Yes. And you can't figure out what you want to do with your life. You can only figure out what you don't want to do. Yes. And everything makes sense. In retrospect. Yes. There's like a convergence point. But I remember there was maybe like a year or two into my coaching journey and I felt really odd because I knew I liked this. I was bartending. I was starting to go into the world of dance, which at 25, sadly, you are over the hill if you are just starting in terms of professional, right? Not talking about recreation and fun. We're going to dance until, I plan to dance until I'm dust. But in terms of actually making a career out of it, I just remember thinking to myself like, gosh, I don't fit into a conventional box. Mm -hmm. And Anytime, Elise, someone would ask me what I did for a living, I would feel so much shame and embarrassment because I didn't have a good answer. And I'd write in my journal, like, why can't I figure this out? And I was just, it was so much stress about not being able to present myself professionally. And then I got a gift from what I can only assign to as the career gods. One day when someone asked me what I did for a living, I answered, I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur. 
I don't know where the hell that little phrase came from. I didn't find it anywhere else. It was like when something appears in your mental theater and I just said it without much thought. And I will tell you something huge shifted for me, even though it's silly and it doesn't mean anything, it gave me a new context in terms of my self-identity. Yeah. Because then they'd say, well, what does that mean? And I'd say, well, you know, I have this coaching practice. I'm also bartending. I'm also starting to teach these dance classes. And I could go and weave and talk about the different things I was passionate about without trying to fit myself into this archaic stereotype of the one thing career. Right. Which is, as we all know, a total fallacy and... People are constantly, you have to reinvent yourself. I mean, there's no more stasis, like that whole paradigm of like, you get promoted up the ranks to become the editor in chief or whatever it is, like does not really exist anymore. And those sort of models are crumbling and it's terrifying, but I think it's also a good reminder, like you have to be, you have to move. And you have to be nimble and flexible and I think willing to do and become new things. Yeah. And so even if those things don't exist yet. Even if those things don't exist yet. Sometimes you have to follow those intuitive gut hits, even though they don't make sense. Yeah. And you're not sure how it's quite gonna unfold, but it will. There will be a convergence point where you'll look in retrospect and go, Oh my goodness. Like my heart, my intuition higher wisdom, however you want to frame that, put me on the right path. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We'll get back to Marie in just a second. I mentioned a few weeks ago on the podcast that curiosity is my favorite state of being. I try to carry that attitude with me every day, and it's certainly easier to do it at a place like Goop that places such a premium value on being curious and feeling empowered to explore and ask questions. Banana Republic is another company that values curiosity. Their founding story starts with a California couple who was looking for an adventure. Fun fact, Banana Republic began as a safari-inspired clothing company. And today, the inspiration for their clothing is designing for a life in motion, or as they put it, living a life of possibilities with no boundaries. Their fall collection is iconic Banana Republic, styled for now. So there are utility-inspired styles made from premium materials. Think your favorite dresses and pants updated in animal prints and menswear patterns, and quintessential suede jackets and cashmere sweaters that you'll wear for many seasons to come. And now, Banana Republic is celebrating some true modern icons with Goop, through our special podcast series, Women on Top. 
I hope you'll listen to every episode. These are the women who lead with power, grace, and curiosity, who I think define what it means to break boundaries, and maybe most importantly, who are working hard so that others too can live a life of possibilities. So keep listening and keep shopping with our friends at Banana Republic. To get their fall collection, head to bananarepublic.com slash goop. A few weeks ago, it was my eighth wedding anniversary. And as we come out of wedding and anniversary season, I've been thinking about the different ways we celebrate certain moments and how we can create memories in our lives. And if you've listened to my conversation with Chip Heath on this podcast, you know this is something I think about a lot. Weddings and anniversaries are, of course, often marked by the exchange of a special piece of jewelry, although some of the jewelry that is most special to me wasn't necessarily tied to an obvious date on the calendar. Simon G. Jewelry specializes in fine jewelry for the traditionally big special occasions and for the moments that we can make into special occasions. Over the past three decades, Simon G. has become known for combining old world romance with modern techniques. Their pieces are glamorous and timeless at the same time. And if you happen to be looking, I'll say that Simon G. makes incredibly beautiful engagement rings too, which stole the show in Goop's engagement story this past May. Around that time, Goop also launched our first G-label fashion capsule for men. And now, Simon G. just released their first men's collection too. Their 18-piece collection includes rings, necklaces, and bracelets in 18-karat gold, diamond, and rubber. So, to shop for that special man or woman in your life, head to simongjewelry.com and find a retailer near you. That's S-I-M-O-N and then the letter G. Back to my chat with Marie Forleo. I love how in tune you are with your intuition. I mean, do you think that that's because you grew up Catholic or like, have you developed that? Like what's your connection to spirit? Yeah. I, so my mom, who's obviously a big influence in my life, she was the first one that introduced me to the idea of a still small voice inside. So I used to walk to school and I'm like a very independent, I was the, I was the girl, I had this meltdown once it was in kindergarten because my mom put me in white tights with black patent leather shoes. And I was think I was like, this is a horrible fashion choice. Like we're not doing this. And I refused to, to go to school. So she's like, okay, I wanted to walk to school by myself as early as possible. And she's like, look, if you're going to walk to school by yourself, I need to teach you about the still small voice. If a car comes up beside and says, Hey little girl, we've got some candy, come on in. And you hear that voice say, run, I need you to listen to it. So she basically trained me from the time I was very small, that I have an inner guidance system and that it will never steer me wrong. That no matter what's happening on the outside, no matter who's saying what, if I feel it's off, I have to trust it. And if I feel it's right, I have to listen. Mm. And so by the time that I became a young adult and was getting in the workplace and trying to just find my place in the world, I feel like I had that training. And now two decades into this career, it is the thing that I rely the most on is yeah. my instinct. No, it's true. And it's, it's really comes through throughout the book. So the other thing, there are many moments, but I want to talk about I can't versus I won't. And I want to talk about the exercise cause that you have in the book where you, particularly for people who are looking to make big change or scary leaps, the catastrophizing. Yes. And the exercise of sort of writing down all of the terrible things that could happen. Yes. And then assessing those and then creating that plan in advance of how you're going to pick yourself back up. Yes. So we can talk about excuses first. So yeah. when people hear the phrase, everything is figure outable, 
they often get really excited about it. I do too. It's the thing that drives my life. But then someone always asks like, well, what prevents us from figuring things out? And when I really thought about that, I was like, most of the time, we'll talk about fear in a moment or two, but most of the time, the first thing we bump into are our excuses. Mm -hmm. Don't have enough time don't have enough resources, don't have enough know-how. Those are the three most common that all of our minds, my mind can come up with too. And there's a great little trick that we can use to set ourselves free. Two four-letter words, can't versus won't. Here's the frame. 99% of the time, not always, 99% of the time, when we use the word can't, it's really a euphemism for won't. Yeah. And what does won't mean? Won't means that we're not willing to, We don't want to make the sacrifice. We don't want to put in the time, the effort, the energy. We don't want to move that thing ahead of our other priorities, which are more important. And it's this moment of kind of giving yourself a reality check that can be incredibly freeing. So let's say for me, one of my life goals, I want to be able to speak Italian fluently. So I could say an excuse, I don't have the time. I'm just so busy. I can't learn to speak Italian right now because I simply don't have the time. But here's the truth, Elise. Just last week, I was in New York, and I'd done a bunch of work for the day, and Josh and I were mating, making some dinner. Mating. Mating. <laughs> we, well, <laughs> thankfully, we get that in there, too. Um, but we were making dinner, and then I, like, wanted to veg out, right? And what did I spend, like, a free two hours doing? Netflix. Yes. And you know what? <laughs> Stranger Things. Because it brings me freaking joy, like a whole lot of joy. I didn't spend that time like in my language app, like learning to say another phrase. The truth was, it's not that big of a priority for me right now. And that's okay. That doesn't make me lazy. That doesn't make me a bad person. That makes me honest. So the challenge I would give to everyone listening is to just play with that can't versus won't. Like anytime you say that you can't, flip it and insert the word won't and see if it feels more true. Yeah. And yeah. if and it's true it is incredibly liberating cuz I think we just harass ourselves. I would say harangue ourselves with all of the things that we think that we should be doing. And that's the truth. Yeah. Like maybe I'm not going to go to the gym in the morning cuz I want to hang with my kids and that's okay. And that's awesome cuz you know why? That's a bigger priority. Yeah. And that is your priority and that's how I'm like we need to be kind to ourselves because then we get all this space back and all this energy back to actually tackle the stuff that's really important to us. Mm-hmm. And maybe someplace down the line, it'll be like, now is the stage in my life where going to the gym in the morning makes sense. Maybe. Yeah. But that's not like a criteria for having a great life by any means. Totally. And I know you mentioned fear, yes. which I think you give three definitions. False evidence appearing real, fuck everything and run. Face everything and rise. (laughs) My friend, too, he says, my friend Will, who's been on the podcast, says fear is excitement unexpressed. Yes, fear is excitement with the brakes on. That's how I say it. I love it. (laughs) It's very true. It's this incredible possibility that I think we have. I think nine times out of 10, our fear is directive. Fear is like a GPS for where your soul wants to go. Mm. So we know from an evolutionary perspective that it keeps us from walking into traffic. Awesome, great. But for most of us, most of the time, our fear really is directive and trying to nudge us to a project or a possibility or a growth edge where there's magic. Mm -hmm. And so I like to talk to people about fear like this. So if you think about an infant 
who's wailing, doesn't have language skills yet, can only make sounds, either pick me up, I need my diaper changed, something's not right. If you think about a dog, right? Barking, barking, barking. They're trying to let you know something. They don't have the ability to use words. I like to think about fear as our friend, and she's doing the same thing. So when you're up against this possibility that just gets you terrified, but you know you're not going to die if you actually step into it. Think about fear like jumping up and down and waving her hands like she had, you know, the the airport director kind of neon Mm -hmm. glowing globes in her hand, like do this. This is the thing. So rather than saying danger and stop, she's saying do it for fuck's sake. Like I'm trying to give you a signal that this is where you need to move. And so I think if we think about it in that way, that fear is really an ally and not a foe, the whole context changes and then we can really start to pay attention to it as a helpful signal rather than a deterrent. Right. So let's talk about then catastrophizing. I think that's what prevents so many of us from moving. Because a friend of mine taught me this a while ago and it's been so helpful because I have anxiety. So I was thrilled to sort of see it in a full-blown exercise in your book. So this is really, really useful. And one of the reasons that we don't move through fear is because it stays kind of amorphous in our minds and we never actually take the time to give it language on the page, to write it down and make it specific and concrete and also get a little bit of distance and perspective from it. So step one is write down the worst of the worst of the worst case scenarios that you can possibly imagine from moving forward with this. I did a version of this when I was thinking about starting my own business. You know what I mean? Like, what happens if this thing doesn't work? And I just made a list. And my list kept going from like, oh, I'm going to be a laughing stock. I'm not going to make enough money. I'm going to be a disappointment to my family. And I was like, yeah, all that stuff is kind of bad, but keep going. Let's dig even deeper. What's the worst if that happens? Okay, I don't have enough clients. I don't have a place to live. I'm homeless. My family doesn't want me anymore. And then I hit the whole kind of bottom of my fear, the kind of basement of it, was not being able to provide for myself, not having a place to go, and having no one that cared about me. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, if that actually happened, what could I do to lift myself back up? Concretely, the shit hit the fan. It's just all gone. What could I do? And I looked at that and I was like, okay, I could probably go to a shelter. Mm -hmm. Then I could probably apply to try and get some job, any job that I possibly could. Minimum wage doesn't matter anywhere. And then no matter how long it took, I would pull myself back up, even if it took years, and I would find something else to do. And here's the other thing I think is useful in terms of this exercise. When you write down, and it's really important that people actually write this down, don't just think it, don't speak it, put pen to paper. Look at those worst, worst case scenarios and ask yourself, what do you believe at this moment is the likelihood of that actually happening? Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing, when you look at some of those worst case scenarios and you really get some space from them and then you rate them like on a scale of one to 10, what's the likelihood of it just, yeah, that's really going to happen. Or you know what? It's really unlikely. You start to see areas where you could mitigate or put bumpers in place to prevent it from getting to the worst, worst, worst case scenarios. Right. So that's a great way to kind of evaluate the bad side. But here's where it gets really fun. Then you've got to flip the script. What's the 
best case scenario that could possibly happen from you moving forward on this idea? Like, what if everything actually worked? Mm -hmm. What dreams would come true? What would you achieve in your life? How would you grow as a human? How might you be able to contribute to yourself, your family, to the community at large? What are all the net gains that are possible if you move forward with this and it all somehow works out? And so when I made my list in terms of the business, like the ability to do work that I believed in, to travel the world, to earn enough money to take care of myself and to other people and causes I believe in, to build a team. Like there was, there were so many good things that were potentially possible if I moved ahead. That best case scenario list kicked the ass mm -hmm. of the worst case scenario list. And then I knew in my body, not just in my mind talking about it, I'm like, this is worth it. Yeah. So I feel like it's a really practical thing. It doesn't have to take more than 10 or 15 minutes. And right there, you have a roadmap for how to mitigate against worst case scenarios and also see what's possible for you if you move in the direction yeah. of your dreams. I also think you're a great example of like of the mitigating of risk. Like you clearly are not an all eggs in one basket type of person. And I think that's another fallacy. Another podcast that we did in the early days was with this, she's an MFA, MBA, her name's Amy Whitaker. And she gives us she works with creatives and tries to help them build business. And she uses this couch metaphor. Like you can have, you, you can have all these throw pillows that give the, your life, like the color and the texture and the passion, but like, let's get you like a foundational couch. Like even if it's from Ikea. So, cause that's particularly, I think for women, so liberating, right? Yes. Yeah. And you also, and so I could almost hear some people listening right now being like, but what if I have kids and I have a responsibility and mortgage and all of these things? This exercise can actually help you kind of turn the dials on your dreams. You're like, oh, maybe I don't go all in right now, but you know what I can do? I can start something part-time. I right. can start something in the evenings or on weekends, or I can kind of dial up and down this risk so that I'm comfortable going in at this level, and then I'll take the feedback, I'll take clarity comes from engagement, not thought, to inform my next steps. I don't need to know what's happening 50 steps out. Just this next step, starting mm -hmm. before you're ready, is enough to get people into momentum and creating yeah. progress. Yes, starting before, that's a great line too. I also love, you call it, and I feel like sometimes, maybe we're all this person, but dream anemic. Yes. And this idea of like, I don't even know what I want. Yes. That's actually in my career has been one of the things that happens most often. Mm -hmm. So in the early days prior, we have a program called B-School where I work with a lot of folks. But when I was working with folks one-on-one, -on -one, I would be like, look, I am so confident I can help you get anything you want. But first you've got to tell me what that is. And then I'm your partner, you know, and then we're going to go. And I was like, ugh. I'd often be met with like that look of, you know, deer kind of frozen in the headlights. Like, I don't know the answer to that. And I think a lot of us have been pleasing others for so long mm -hmm. or trying to live up to either our familial expectations or society's expectations of who we are, who we should be, how we're allowed to dream, what we're supposed to accomplish, that we've lost touch with that inner compass and some of those dreams. There's a prompt that we use at our company and that I use personally that has worked like magic. And it's super simple. Anyone can use it. We do it in brainstorming sessions. And I use it in my own journal whenever I feel myself getting a little bit rusty. 
It's wouldn't it be cool if. Mm. Just this little sentence stem, wouldn't it be cool if. Yeah. And letting yourself go nuts on the page. Yeah. Go wild. I think it can help unearth some of what folks have probably either suppressed or never given themselves permission to totally express. And then the other sentence stem, what I really want is. Yes. Yeah. Which is hard. It's hard, but here's the joy. Like this is what I get excited about with the exercises and the stuff that we talk about in the book is it's all free. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a journal and a piece of paper and a pen and crayons, I like using gel pens because I love using colored whatever and and having I'm not surprised. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We have like silly conversations, my friends, and I'm like, do you have your gel pens? It's so childish, (laughs) but it's also really fun. So what I really want is, I think that's confronting for many of us, Mm -hmm. but the beauty of doing it on the page is you don't have to show anyone and you can burn it after you can, you know, crumble it up. You can, I really do recommend for anyone listening to not do it in a digital document. There's some research behind this, but I also feel like most people know this to be true. Like when you're writing by hand, if at all possible, if you can, your brain slows down and it, there's something really mystical about analog, yeah, I agree. especially for these types of explorations. And talking about what you really want on the page, I feel like that is the beginning of architecting a life that you really love. And taking a look at, are you investing your most precious resources of time and effort and energy in a way that's aligned with your highest values? Mm-hmm. And if not, it's not really a problem. It's like a beautiful opportunity to make some changes while you still have time. Yeah. And the idea too of the sort of, I think you say seven days of free associating. Yes. Circling the things that are recurrent themes. Yes. And using that as a way to sort of refine what it is. Yeah. So there's a a number of prompts in the book around this particular exercise. The chapter is called define your dream. And there's a section there. I'm like, for those of you who are like, Oh, I don't know. What is the big thing that I want to figure out? What is this like gnarly problem? That's been such a pain point for years, decades of my life, or what's this big dream that makes me so excited maybe a little scared, but like popping out of the bed in the morning and just like, I'm going to tackle this thing. Some people don't have that answer. And so these kind of journaling exercises will help you really get aligned with the call of your soul. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I really want is why I haven't gotten this yet is there's like so much truth telling between you and you. And I think that's where the magic happens. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. 
Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We're going to take a quick break. There's a workout, then there's a goop workout, and then there's goop league. Goop League is our first major fitness-focused experience. We're launching this new event the weekend of October 12th to 13th in a city that we love and that's become something of a second home to us. That's Austin, Texas, guys. And we'll be at our favorite, the Line Hotel in downtown Austin, right on the river. What in the world can you expect from the Goop team this time? Goop League is all about tapping into the incredible potential of the body. We're bringing together some of the most talented and cutting edge instructors and experts from the world of fitness. These are the people who are redefining physical wellness and shaping the way we think about and approach the mind-body-soul connection. As a guest at Goop League, you'll get to take three classes with these top practitioners in several different studio spaces. Ground, lift, pulse, burn, and release. And some of my very favorite teachers will be there like Anna Ray, a former dancer from LA who has developed a wholly unique, compelling, and fun movement method that revolves around reconditioning your fascia. It's extraordinary, I promise. And Colette Dong from the Ness in New York City will also be there. The executive team at Goop recently did the Ness's new bounce and sculpting classes together when we were out on the East Coast. It was hard, I'm not gonna lie, but it was kind of hilarious and very cool. And of course, you'll get to see and do a lot more if you come to Goop League. There will be our pop-up shop, food, drinks, and a bunch of power stations where we'll have tools for soothing sore muscles, relaxing, and just finding a little zen. So to join the Goop League, you can get a pass for the event on Saturday, October 12th or Sunday, October 13th. Just head to goop.com slash goop league. And now back to today's conversation. I thought it was also resonant when in the book you're talking about how your, is he your partner, husband? So Josh and I are unmarried. I'm that person that I've never wanted to be married and have kids and everyone's like, but Josh and I have been together for 16 years. We don't have a word. And if you want to give us one, I'd be really open to it because it always feels awkward. I know. Partner is not very romantic. It doesn't feel right. So we're engaged. And I always play off of this and I'm like, I like the word engaged because there is motion in it. Yeah. Like there's this kinetic energy of actually wanting. So I just, we're, he's technically my fiance, but it's, it's been 16 years. That's amazing. Okay. So, but so when Josh was trying to get you to juice and adopt a healthy lifestyle and then you, (laughs) I think it was Chris Carr who convinced you and he was like, I don't understand. I've been telling you this for fucking decades. Yes. But the idea that the way that you bring it back to the sort of the why not me, like this idea, it feels like every idea has been created and seen through or everything has been expressed. So what's left, but that everyone can be a messenger. Yes. So this comes back to one of my kind of core beliefs. And we talk about this a lot. I say it every week on our show, Marie TV, the world needs that special gift that only you have. I believe that to my bones, Mm -hmm. that every single person on the planet is here for a reason. And there are a myriad of gifts and talents and skills. You know, if we step back and look at it, like you're a one-time mega event in the universe. You've never been here. And as far as we know, you'll never be here again. So like now is the time. And for you and for me and for everyone listening in a hundred years, likely we're going to be powder. And so if you have an idea in your heart, something that you want to bring to life, 
It could be a dish that you're cooking, a way that you want your family to be experienced and expressed. It could be something in your career. And you don't do everything you possibly can to bring it to life. I want to assert that you are stealing from those who need you most. Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. I like it because it gets my ass up in the morning. And it yeah. gets, do you know what I mean? It like helps me stay engaged. And so to your point, that story, one of the biggest rebuttals I hear is like, but it's all been done before. Yeah. Who needs to hear it from me? There's a million yarn makers and hot sauce makers and podcasts and businesses and novels. And again, ad nauseum, you can go down that whole train. But then I like to confront people with this. Can you imagine if Oprah, right? She was looking around and was like, you know, Phil Donahue's really got it covered. Like the whole daytime talk show thing. Like who needs another talk show host? Cause he's doing just fine. It's like how much joy and aha moments and all this glory. Like I grew up on, on Oprah. Right. We would have missed out on that. Or like if Beyonce was like, oh, there's enough singers in the world. We really don't need that much more music. Like they've got it covered. Like you can go down. I think about this as a New Yorker. There's this little place called Pepe Rosso and they have an amazing eggplant parm. And I just love it. And I think to myself, like, imagine if Pepe Rosso looked around New York City and go, there's so many Italian joints and there's too much friggin' eggplant parm. We don't need another person selling eggplant parm. I would have missed out on many, many dozens of joy from that awesome, tiny little eggplant parm place. So uh, in terms of the story with Josh, I remember he, uh, when- I would also like to offer that we never want to take advice from our significant others, fiancés, husbands, wives, partners, boyfriends, girlfriends. I agree with you 100%. (laughs) When him and I first got together, I was just at a stage in my world. First of all, I didn't understand proper nutrition. I was someone who grew up on like White Castle and pizza, and that was just- where I came from. So you just don't do what you know. And so when him and I got together, every time he would leave town, he would come back and the trash can was filled with like Chef Boyardee cans and like rice boxes. It was just a nightmare. And he was Hamburger like, helper. I'm t- it was, I was the worst. <laughs> and he was like, can, can, what if we juice and look at these great supplements? And I was like, whatever, hippie man. Like I'm working like four jobs right now trying to get my life together. I can't afford it. I don't have time for it. All that stuff cut to a few years later, become really close friends with Chris Carr. And she introduces me to the world of a plant-based diet and like juicing and all these beautiful things. And when I come home and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the juicer we have to get. And here's all the supplements we need to take. And like, why haven't we been doing this for years? And he had an understandable palm to forehead moment. And my point is this, sometimes there's someone out there in the world who is waiting for a message and they can only hear it from you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's, that's when it comes back to this idea that the world needs that special gift that only you have. There are folks out there that are waiting for your creative expression to be expressed because you're the person that needs to, to deliver it in order for them to have the benefit. Right. No, I love that idea. I think it also sort of obliterates the scarcity that's so defining for so many women or this need to have permission or this idea that you're going to be chosen or picked or selected. Oh boy. Let's deal with the scarcity piece because in my opinion, scarcity as a concept, as a reality is one of the most destructive forces on the planet. And it's completely untrue. You know, if we look at it from an opportunity standpoint, you know, there are 7.7 billion people roughly on the planet and that number's growing. There are more than enough customers, opportunity, people out there for everyone to have what they need. 
Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, even when it comes to things like the most important things in our world, like money and health and happiness, those things aren't scarce. They right. really aren't. There's not a limited pie. And to believe that, and you know, so many kind of areas of our, our political and social system just kind of reinforce that notion that if someone gets something, someone else is not going to have it. And it's just a pervasive myth. And I think it divides us and it creates so much pain. But even in a personal sense, there is more than enough to go around. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I used to do, especially when I was in tons of debt and I didn't have my money life figured out, every time I'd write a check, I would bless it and say, there's always more where that came from. Yeah. To retrain myself and what I knew to be true in my bones, even though my reality didn't reflect it, was that there is always more where that came from. Yeah. No, I've had to subscribe. That's been a like a little bit of a shift for me to move from scarcity and fear and money to this idea of like, I'm really good at earning it. Yes. And then it was interesting reading your book, the idea, and there's part of me that wants to reject this because- as a woman, I'm like, no, I should be into, like, I should embrace, you know, being the primary breadwinner and like wanting to make money. But I, for whatever, this is more comfortable, what you put forth in the book, which is this idea, like, I want to make more money so I can give more money away. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that like feeds sort of our feminine, like, oh, we need to take care of everyone else. That's but an interesting. Much more comfortable. Well, I I have to tell you that I maybe am the wrong person to reject that because I like it. Mm-hmm. I think that that intrinsic desire to share, that intrinsic desire to say, I have, and I also want you to have, mm-hmm. is incredibly urgent right now. It's what this world needs. I agree. And so, I love money. I say that, I actually think it's going to be the title of my next book. <laughs> when I tell people that, and sometimes when I tell students, and um, especially when I'm teaching in a business context, and I'm like, look, I love money. It's like, <gasps> like I can feel, you know, just you can hear a pin drop. And I'm like, I don't love it above people. I don't love it above my values, but I love it because it's freedom mm-hmm. and there's power in it. And when used, by someone with heart and soul and a desire to help others, it's incredibly healing. It's a very, very powerful tool. And I just think because we've been so enculturated with so much negativity around money and we have so many kind of conflicting inner feelings, we want it, but we think it makes us look greedy. We, you know, we want more, but maybe we shouldn't want more. We should be grateful for what we have. I'm like, look, you can love it and you can still be an amazing person and you can do so much good with it in the world. Yeah. And more women need more money in yes. order to do that. There's so much research behind how the world improves when women are economically empowered. I mean, I think they reinvest up to 90% of what they earn in their families, in the communities, in education, in healthcare. By all of these measures, everyone wins. Yeah. Immediate family wins, community wins, nations win, economies win. We all win. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Marie Forleo. You can learn more about what she does at marieforleo.com. That's M-A-R-I-E-F-O-R-L-E-O. And make sure to get a copy of her book, Everything is Figureoutable. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime... 
you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.